See, it's good to see you, Mars Hill. Hope you're doing well. I look around the room and I see a lot of guests with us this morning. I know that we're, we're going to be celebrating baptism here in a little bit with a lot of people, both services, and so we're thankful that you're here if you're a guest with us. We're studying through the book of Exodus and we're continuing this morning in our study of the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 22, verses 16 down to 31, and this has been... I don't know about you, but for me, a very encouraging study through these ordinances as we've looked at. These are all ordinances that expound on the Ten Commandments. And this is not the text necessarily that we would all go to to say, how can I be encouraged? <laughs> as we look at these, these verses, these somewhat seem obscure and distant and unrelated. And, and, and if we're studying through the Bible, many of us might skip over these. But as we've said throughout, Paul says in the New Testament, for example, that, that everything written in the Old is written for our instruction. And we're learning so much in these verses in chapter 21 and 22 and, and 23. We're learning what it looks like for Israel to be the rescued, redeemed people of God. What it looks like to be a holy nation. And for us, as we look through this, through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus, we're learning what it looks like to be gospel-transformed people. What does it look like for us to fight for the vulnerable? What does it look like for us to, to call on Jesus' kingly reign in our lives daily and to live according to his reign daily? To align our lives according to him and to his will and to his heart. What does it look like for us to do that? And we're learning about these things as we study through these verses here in these few chapters. We're also learning something very interesting. And it, it's not obvious when we just glance over the text. But we're learning the very heart of God. As we read these texts, we're learning about his very heart and his very character and his very nature. If you remember... Three weeks ago, as we studied through these laws on, on life and, and death, we're learning that God is a just God, that he expects his people to execute justice fairly, according to just standards. You cannot have justice and just standards without an ultimate, absolute, just God. These overflow from his heart. If you don't have a just God, then you have the 31 flavors of justice. It's the justice of the day, the flavor of the day. We stand for this cause and that cause, and you're seeing that in our culture. And the reason you're seeing that in our culture is because we, we have jettisoned truth. We've jettisoned an absolute holy God. But if we're going to be the people of God, then we've got to live according to his standards, his expectations. We looked, yes, last week, we, we looked in these few verses in, in the first half of chapter 22, and the, and the word, the theme, the repeated word and refrain is restoration. It, it's seen eight times in the text. It, it comes out in the English translation as, as repay or restore, but it's 13 times in those verses. Restore what has been broken or divided. God cares about what has been broken and divided, particularly what has been broken and divided away from himself. He cares that we be restored to him and that we be made whole individually and that we be made whole together. And then the theme this week, the theme today in our verses is protect. Protection of the weak, the powerless, the poor, the vulnerable. And where does that come from? 
It comes from a God who cares about the weak, the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable. He cares about you and I who are weak, poor, powerless, and vulnerable. We're going to see that in the text this morning. As we look at our text this morning, we're going to see two two more ways that Israel is being called to be distinct. All of these in chapter 21 and chapter 23 are calls to be distinct. You cannot be like Egypt where you came from, Israel. And you cannot be like the land of Canaan where you're going. You must be distinct. Exodus 19, 6, you are a holy nation. We're going to hear that again this morning. You are a set-apart people and distinct. And we're going to see two more key ways this morning they are to be distinct. And the first is they are to be distinct in how they care for the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable. That's the bulk of the text. That's going to be the bulk of where we camp out this morning. There's going to be four examples of that in this text this morning. And the second is not only are they to protect the poor and powerless and vulnerable, they're also to protect their own poor, powerless, and vulnerable hearts from idolatry. And then we're going to be reminded again why? Why should they do this? There's going to be motives throughout. Why is going to be listed throughout. God's going to give that, but we're going to end with verse 31, which gives us again the why. So those are our three points. Let's look at first how they are expected to protect and be distinct in their protection of the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable. As I mentioned, there's four examples of this in the text, and the first is in verse 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married, or betrothed in some translations, who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, the man shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. The word seduce here means to deceive. It means to lead astray. If a man deceives or leads astray, particularly what the text says, and the English translation is is virgin, the Hebrew word is batula, and a batula is a young woman of marriageable age, you'll see a little uh, footnote probably in most of your translations, A, a young woman of marriageable age who is still under the care and the protection and the responsibility of her father. If a man comes to seduce or deceive a batula, a a young woman that is under the care and responsibility of her father, then he must pay a bride price. The interesting thing about that word betula is that it is sometimes used as a term of endearment for a man's precious daughter. If someone is going to seduce a father's precious, prized daughter, then he must pay a price. He must pay a bride price. The context here, every woman in this context, and and therefore every daughter, was under the care and the loving responsibility of the father of the house. That that this was the responsibility and the role that, that men had. And the common practice was, if you desired to take a woman to be your wife, then you would go to the father and you would negotiate to pay a bride price, a dowry. And it was a public commitment. It was a statement before the family, before the father, before the the community that this woman has extreme, significant value 
to the family and also to me. So it was a public commitment where the man was honoring and recognizing her dignity and her worth and acknowledging that that she had extreme value to the family and to the father. But more than that, it was the public commitment of the man saying, she also has extreme, significant dignity and value to me and I will take responsibility for her. I will take leadership and care. I will give her the protection that her father has been giving her. And here, it's profound what God is saying to the men of Israel. He's putting in regulatory protective measures. And he's calling the men of Israel to their royal role as defenders of God's precious daughters. He's calling the men to a public commitment before the family, before the father, before God, to say, I will take her as my responsibility. I will pour in. I will put in. I will give her the protection, the provision. I will take responsibility for her. It's profound what he's calling men to in this verse. Don't be people who love and leave, men. Don't be people who use and abuse the women. That's what he's calling the men of Israel to. Be different and distinct from the surrounding nations that simply consume women. Instead, be what I created you to be. Royal, responsible, loving defenders of God's precious daughters. Men, do you hear by implication our calling and assignment to be loving defenders of God's daughters? This is profound. It it is a calling for us in our time to put down our keyboards and our smartphones and to pick up our swords and to protect God's precious daughters and no longer be consumers of them. (laughs) Thank you. This is our calling. This is our privilege. Women, ladies, Do you hear what God is doing in this text? Do you hear the extreme, intrinsic dignity and worth and value that you have as God's precious daughters? That you're loved and cherished so much that he expects men to make a public commitment, to pay a price for your affection and love and to not use you, and to not abuse you, and to not consume you. Do you realize this goes even further in the New Testament? Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, he goes even further. What's the price that men are supposed to pay? They're supposed to pay the price that Jesus paid. And what did Jesus pay? He paid for you, his precious daughter, with his own life. That's what men are called to, and that's what you should expect, women. This is profound good news for both men and women in this text. And it's a call to protect. It's a call to honor. It's a call to to defend the dignity and the worth of every single one of God's precious daughters. If a man wants one of God's daughters, he's going to have to make a public commitment. He's going to have to take responsibility. He's going to have to take on the care and the loving leadership 
And he's going to have to pay a price. And the price that we are called to pay, men, according to the New Testament, is to lay down our lives just like Jesus did. He defended his bride. He fought for his bride. And we are called to do the same thing. That's example number one. Number two, there's a second example in the text of God's call to protect the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. It's in verses 21 to 24. And this focuses on their protection and care for three categories, sojourner, widow, and orphan. Verse 21 and 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. This is the first time in the Old Testament that these three categories of people are put together, and it will become shorthand in the Old Testament for the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable. The sojourner, sometimes referred to as the foreigner, or the immigrant, or the outsider, the, the, the fatherless, those that, that are, are orphans, those that, that have no one to protect them. The widow also, those without the fatherly care, the, the husband care and responsibility. And in this society at this time, these are the most vulnerable. These are potentially the most oppressed. These are potentially the most vulnerable and under uh, possible attack. And here what God is saying and what will become true, and, and you'll see fleshed out endless times throughout the Old Testament, is that he cares for these. That he desires to protect these. Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, verse 19, love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. What are we seeing here in Exodus 22? What are we seeing in these verses and numerous other verses in the Old Testament? But God's very heart for the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable. God's very heart to protect those who are most vulnerable. And what's interesting is in this text, in verse 21, to 24, it shifts from the second person, you shall not wrong a sojourner, to the first person, I will hear their cry. Who's the defender in this? God himself will come as their defender if Israel will not protect them, if Israel will oppress, oppress them. And then we're going to get motive again throughout this text, but verse 21, why should they protect the poor, the powerless, the vulnerable? Why should they protect the sojourner? Why should they guard the, de the defenseless, the, the widow, the orphan? Because you yourselves were poor, powerless, and vulnerable. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
You once were outsiders. You once were sojourners, foreigners. You once were defenseless. You once were vulnerable. You once were poor. You once were weak. You once were powerless in Egypt. And what you're going to see is that's another thing that will be repeated throughout the Old Testament. Never forget where you came from. Particularly never forget what God did in hearing your cry and coming to your rescue Exodus 23, 9, we'll see it again. You shall not oppress the sojourner. You, were, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. In verse 19, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's again, what's the motive? Why would they? Why should they? Because that's who they were. Never forget God's rescuing grace. They have a responsibility to welcome the stranger, to welcome the outsider, to care for the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. And by implication, we have the same because we too were once poor and powerless. We were in the most poor, most powerless, most vulnerable condition. We were far worse than Israel was in Egypt. We were under the oppressive rule of the tyrant king, Satan. We were oppressed and enslaved to sin and God heard our cry and he came to our rescue and because of his great grace because of his rescue we can't help but have hearts and minds and eyes set on those in the same condition both physically and spiritually it's now part of the DNA of what it means to be a follower of Christ it's, it overflows from the heart of God. It overflows in and through the heart and the work of Jesus. And it is now supposed to be our heart and our work as it works past the head and down to the heart and out to the hands. We want to do the same thing. There's a third example in the text of God's desire and care for the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. It's in verse 25 and 27. And this has to do with their lending practices. Particularly explicitly, in this case, for the poor. Verse 25 and 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body, and in what else will he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. There it is again. For I am compassionate. The, the common practice was, at this time, in the, in the land that they're going to, was to see the poor as an opportunity. To see the poor as an opportunity to profit. Why? How? To see the poor and to know they have nothing and yet here they are, they're asking me for money. Here's my chance. I can profit off. How are you going to profit off the poor if they have no money? Because you exact exorbitant interest. And what that means is they're going to default on the loan. And when they default on the loan, you get more than just what they owed. You get their possessions. You might even get their life. They will owe you everything. They will be yours. So... So at this time in the land that they're going, the, the exorbitant lending practices of the time was to abuse the people. It was to capitalize and manipulate the, the poor, to, to, to abuse them and, and to oppress them. And here, 
what was common also was that they would give a pledge. And the pledge was a cloak or a home. And often what would happen was the, the person lending, you would come to them and you'd say, hey, um, I, I really need a loan. Can you, can you help me out? And they'd say, okay, well, what can you give in, in pledge? What can you give to verify that you're, you're going you're gonna to pay this off? Well, I mean, I don't know, what would you need? Here's my cloak. No, I want to come in your home. I want to look at what I, what's available to me. Where's your car? Where's your house? Where's your stuff? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, what, that's the pledge right there. If you default on the loan, this is what you're going to owe. And so it was, again, another way of, of capitalizing and, and making and taking more. And here what God says is if you receive a pledge, return it by evening. In other words, the practice was to be, I'm really in need and, and I have a situation here I can't provide for my family. Can you, can you help me out? Sure, absolutely. What do you need? Well, I'm not, I can't just take anything uh, just for free. Here, here, here's a pledge. I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter. What you can all, don't, don't okay, I'll hold it. You're going to come back and get it tonight. Do you hear what's happening here? The pledge is irrelevant. The pledge is not even necessary. The, 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 the pledge was, it, it, this is twofold. This is calling people that borrow to be honest. That, that you shouldn't have to give a pledge. You should just say, my word, my life before God. I'm, I'm a God-fearer. It doesn't matter what I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay back. And then as a, a lender, it, it doesn't matter. God's called me to give, called, called me to use the resources that he's He's provided, and so I'm going to share. And all, why? Not to, to manipulate and to oppress, but to give you opportunity to get back on your feet, to be made whole, to be made right. Deuteronomy 24, 12, we see this again. If a man is poor, don't sleep in his pledge, whether that's his cloak or whether that's his house, but return it that he may be warmed and bless you. Don't use people for your gain. Don't be consumers of people. Instead, be generous and lavish like your God, who has not consumed you, but has given generously and lavishly. Don't be so uncaring and unconcerned that you ignore a person's basic needs. See them. See their needs. See their condition and meet it. Serve them. Just like your God. We see the motive again in verse 27. Why? Why should they do this? Why? Because if the poor person cries to God, God will hear. And then what does it say? The most amazing thing. For I am compassionate. The Hebrew word there means gracious. Because I'm a giver. Because I'm generous. Because I'm lavish. Because I care. Therefore, you ought to do the same thing. You ought to operate and act in the same manner, in the same way. And this is exactly what he has done with us. He did it with Israel in lavishing his grace on them and rescuing them and, and taking them who were destitute and poor and lavishing on them his abundant grace. What did he do as they left Egypt? He poured out. The people begged them to go and paid them to go. And they got silver and gold upon gold. And what do we get? 
We were rescued from an even darker hole, an even darker destitution, an even greater poverty. And what do we get? We get grace upon grace, John says. We get the gospel, we get the good news of Jesus. Therefore, we cannot be people who hoard and use and consume our stuff or people. This, when we reflect on the good news of the gospel, causes us to be open, open-handed and generous. It causes us to, to loosen the grip on our, our things, what we think are our things, when in reality they're God's. And that leads us to the fourth, the fourth example here, and that's in verse 29 to 30. The fourth example of God's care for the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable, and his calling for his people to have the same heart and the same attitude. Verse 29 to 30, 29 says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. What are we talking about here in verse 29 and 30? That you shall give the first fruits, the first of your sons, the first of your your flocks, the first of your harvest. What are we talking about here? We're talking about what will later become and be called the tithe. What on earth does the tithe have to do with the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable? Everything. If you remember, and as you study in the Old Testament, you'll learn that the, the, the tithe really had three purposes. One, it was, it was an act of faith. It was, it was an act of worship. It was an act of confession. God, I... Everything that I have is yours. Everything that I am is yours. I wouldn't be breathing if it weren't for you. I wouldn't have anything if it weren't for you. All the earth belongs to you, and you have blessed me, and I can't even fathom how much you've blessed me. What's, what's this little bit first fruits that I could give you? My son? My, what, my firstborn son? That's not enough? I, I can't give you, I mean, I'll give you everything. The first of my flocks, the, the, the drippings, which is what the language of verse 29, the drippings, the best of my, my harvest. Okay, what else? Because you've been that gracious and that kind and that merciful, I can't help but do this. So it was an act of confession, an act of worship, an act of faith. But another purpose of the tithe was to to fund the tabernacle that will be established and will be built. And the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, did not have an inheritance in the land. They didn't have flocks. They didn't have land. And so how are they supposed to survive as they do all of the work of the tabernacle? They're supposed to be fed and provided off some of the, the byproduct of the, of the offering. But the greater point, the greater point, the third reason for the tithe was it was given in order to be given back to those that are in need. Exactly. <laughs> Excited. That one's in need right there. Here's Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. All this stuff that's been being brought forward in, in, in tithes and offerings should be brought out at one point it will be stored up it will be brought out and the Levite the priesthood because he has no portion or inheritance with you and the sojourner the fatherless and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled 
That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Do you hear? You understand that God does not need your finances. He does not need any of our money. It is his. It belongs to him. And we've been placed as stewards over it. And in giving, what we're doing is confessing back to him. And in giving at this time, and, and even now, it is all intended to be poured back out on us. He's not hoarding it. He's not saying, hey, give me your stuff because I, I have a little debt that i got to pay off. He's not saying, give me all your stuff because I need it. He's saying, give me your stuff as an act of confession and watch me bless and pour it all back out on you, on all those that are in need. So verse 29 and 30 is a call to steward his resources for the good of his people, particularly the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable. Now here's what's interesting in, in this, and it's, it's so profound, and it's like an inception moment here. In this moment, where is Israel standing? They're standing at the base of Mount Sinai. They don't have Flocks. They don't have a vineyard. They don't have a harvest. But they will. What's he doing in this moment but preparing them for the unbelievable, lavish grace he is about to pour out on them in the land of Canaan? And he does not want them to be like the land of Canaan. He wants them to enjoy the land of Canaan and open their hands and their hearts to everyone around them. To not hoard it to themselves, but to give and to give lavishly. And particularly to give in defense and protection of the most vulnerable. In light of all that God's done for Israel, and in light of all that God is going to do for Israel, they are intended to reflect on that unbelievable grace. And they're intended to respond. Okay, what can I do? Where can I serve? How can I go? What can I give? What do I have that's, that's ultimately God's that, that, that someone else might need? Here, 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 here. It's a response to grace. And it's the same thing for us. This is the trajectory of the gospel. As we are reconciled before a holy God, the, the, the awe of that, the shock of that, the, the astounding nature of that ought to melt us and then naturally move us outward horizontally towards others. That's the trajectory of the gospel. It moves past the head, down to the heart, and into action in blessing towards others. And this way of living in the land of Canaan is a stark contrast from the people there. And it's still today a stark and radical contrast in our world. Fast forward to the 4th century and a Roman emperor, Julian, noted this. It's on the screens. He said the Christians, he was in shock, the Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Roman Emperor Julian is recognizing the poverty of the land and he's recognizing that his own people aren't even provided for. And who's doing the lavish giving and generous providing it's the Christians. They're providing for their own, but they're not just providing for their own. They're providing for everyone else as well. Back up to the second century, 
One of the early church fathers was writing an, uh, a letter and he was distinguishing the way of, of the world, the way of, uh, of, of man versus the way of the Christian faith, the transformation that the Christian faith has on people. And he says this, they share their table with all but not their bed with all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet they have plenty of things. They're content with exactly who they are and where they've been put and what, where they've been placed and what they have in life, and yet they don't hoard it to themselves. They, they give. They share everything, but they don't share their beds. They don't, they don't chase after every pleasure. They don't chase after every whim. They don't share their beds, but they share everything else. They are so radically distinct and different. This is, this is still the case, and it still must be the case for you and I. And this is, leads us to the second point. They don't chase every pleasure. Instead, they look for ways to give and share and serve out of the joy of being rescued. And that's what leads us to these really odd and really uncomfortable verses in verse 18, 19, and 20. I know you thought I was going to skip over. Verse 18, 19, and 20 all have to do with idolatry. Every single one of them. And so they're supposed to guard the vulnerable and also guard their own vulnerable hearts. And these verses are unique and they seem completely out of context because the theme throughout all of these verses is to protect the poor and the weak and the powerless and the vulnerable. And then here we have these three really awkward, odd verses on sorcery, on bestiality, and on sacrificing to foreign gods. These seem out of place, but they're not. So verse 18, down to 20. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Verse 18 men mentions sorcery. Sorcery was an attempt to call down a god to work on your behalf. And in particular, in this context in, in Exodus, the last time we saw this was in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. And what did Pharaoh do? He called his magicians and his sorcerers to work on his behalf to overcome and defeat God. So, so in this context, the, the request for a sorcerer or the, the request of a sorcerer or the use of a sorcerer, the going to a sorcerer to work on your behalf is to go to a demon or to go to a, a false god and to plead for that false god to come to your aid in defense against God. Deuteronomy 18 verse 9 to 14 makes it clear that when they enter into the land of Canaan, this will be the normal practice of the people in the land of Canaan calling on foreign gods to work on their behalf, particularly calling on foreign gods to work on their behalf against the one true God. And there in Deuteronomy 18, God says, not so for you, Israel. You can't do this. You cannot adopt their practices. You can't do this. He says in verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 9, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. The Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Then we get to verse 19, and verse 19 deals with someone lying with an animal. 
reversing the ultimate, one of the ultimate pinnacle displays of reversing creation order, of, of worshiping in the most intimate way creation over the creator. But what's interesting, again, according to Leviticus 18, 23-24, this is another common practice in the land of Canaan to, which, to where Israel is headed. This is another thing that they're going to have to they're going to encounter. And what God is calling his people away from is, is, is idolatry. He's calling them away from their abominable practices. He's calling them oh, to be distinct and to guard their own hearts in the midst of a land that does this. That this is the norm. He's calling them to guard themselves from this. And why would they do this? Why, why on earth? If you remember back when we studied the ten plagues, do you remember how the gods of Egypt were depicted? They were depicted typically with an animal head and a human body. And this is the same in, in the land of Canaan. And so to lie with an animal at this time was, to, was believed to be another way of trying to impress or please the gods. To bend them to your will. To, to get them to show you favor and to get them to work on your behalf. Verse 20 Anyone who sacrifices to a foreign god was to be devoted to destruction. Another way of saying, face death. All three of these ordinances overflow from the first and second commandments that you're to have no other gods and you're to make no graven images. So, so clearly, all of these have to do with idolatry. And idolatry must be obliterated and moved and removed from your midst. But we have to ask the question, why on earth would these three commands or ordinances against idolatry sit in the middle of a host of verses on protecting and defending the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. Put simply, what we worship will determine how we live. Or said another way, who we worship will determine and affect how we treat others. Think about what is being done here and what's being said here all throughout the ancient Near East. Verse 18 and 20 are, are clearly all about idolatry, but all throughout the ancient Near East, these were common practices. The land of Canaan, these are common practices. And all of them are attempts to get the God on your side to do what you want. In other words, all three of these are ways of manipulating the gods of twisting the God's arm to do ultimately what you want or to give you what you want or to satisfy your desires. In other words, who are they really worshiping? They're worshiping themselves. And if your God is all about consumerism, then you will be all about consumerism. If your God requires manipulation, then you will manipulate others. If your God requires you to pay him before he will show affection, you will require people to pay you or to treat you a certain way before you will ever love them and show them affection. But think about the God of Israel. Think about what's going on here. Think about what, what they are being told. If we worship a God that if we've been transformed by and we worship a God that is gracious and merciful and lavishly generous, then we will be gracious and merciful and lavishly generous. But if we worship a God that has to be pleased or manipulated or paid off or even seduced before he will come and care and take action, 
then we will do that same thing. You must pay me. You must honor me. You must treat me with respect before I will ever give you care or honor or respect. If we worship a God whose very heart is ravished with the most vulnerable and the weak and the poor and the powerless, then our hearts will also be moved by the same thing. But if we worship a God who's biased, whose favor is only poured out on those who look the way he wants them to look or act the way he wants them to act, then we will be biased in our love as well. What we worship will determine how we live. Who we worship will determine how we treat others. This is the exact outline of the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments is about vertical restoration and worship of the one true God. And in light of his grace, overflowing into care and love for others the same way he's cared for us. As we study the Bible, what we see is that we have a God that cannot be manipulated. We, we can try all we want to twist his arms, but he, he will not be manipulated. He cannot be paid off. He is an infinitely loving God and he loves us and shows his grace long before we could ever manipulate him. And that's what he's done for Israel. He's predisposed towards grace. He acts in kindness and mercy. He, he's, he's giving them his love and his affection and he's, he's not going to be manipulated and he calls them to live out of an overflow of that love. Bask in the unbelievable, astonishing glory and grace of God. And then ring it out on the world. The land of Canaan was exactly the opposite of that. They either tried to please the gods and get the gods to do what they want to please themselves, and therefore they required others to do that, or their gods had to be manipulated and they had to be, their favor had to be earned, and therefore that's how they lived in and amongst their people. This is the power of the gospel to change what we're hearing here in these verses. Finally, why? Why, why, why? Why should they care for the poor, the weak, the powerless, the vulnerable? We've heard motive dripping throughout all of these, verse 21, verse 27, because God is compassionate, because, because he rescued you, because you used to be. But there's one last clear summary for why in verse 31. Why is God giving these ordinances and instructions to his people? Because, precisely because they are his people. He has rescued them out of darkness, out of bondage, and he set them free. They were the oppressed. They were the poor. They were the weak. They were the vulnerable in the land of Egypt. And God swooped in and rescued his people. Do you remember the word oppressed in verse 21? Do not oppress the poor, the weak, the powerless, the sojourner, the, the widow, the orphan. That word oppress is the same word that was used for what Egypt did to Israel. Egypt oppressed. And what does it mean? It means they pressed them down. And there was so much force and weight. They were pressing them down to destruction. But what did Israel do? Israel cried out to God. And what did God do? He heard their cry. And he came in terrifying, astonishing 
fury and power, and he rescued them. Why? To set them apart as a consecrated people and a holy nation. To show the world what it looks like to be a rescued and redeemed people in right relationship with God. This is why verse 31 calls them, you shall be a consecrate, you shall be a consecrated people to me. Be consecrated to me. Consecrated means set apart. It means to be holy. Exodus 19:6, you are a, a treasured possession, a treasured people. You are a holy nation. Holy nation, set apart nation, consecrated nation. Why? To display to the world the type of relationship and rescue that they can have also. Do you hear this through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus? You and I, if we have been rescued and redeemed in Christ, are now set apart to display to the world what it's like to be rescued and redeemed before God. God's affection was roused for Israel and it's roused for us. What do we know though from the Old Testament? What we know from the Old Testament is the people did not respect God's authority. They did not guard themselves from idolatry. They did not protect themselves and they did not protect the poor the powerless and the vulnerable. Psalm 106, verse 34 to 36. They did not destroy the peoples in the land that they were sent as the Lord commanded, but they mixed with the nations and they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare for them. That's going to be repeated again at the end of chapter 23. They were not known for being distinct among the nations. They were not known for being set apart. They were not known for being holy. In fact, they adopted the practices and the principles of the land to which they were going in the land of Canaan. And they went far beyond sorcery. They went far beyond bestiality. It says in Psalm 106 verse 37, they even sacrificed their own children. Why? What does that teach us? What we have here are laws ordinances, commands, and they're full of motive, God's grace. But what we're being taught here is that we need far more than external behavior modification, external laws. We need the law written on our hearts, which is what God promises to do in Jeremiah 31 and what God promises to do in Ezekiel 36. It's what God promises to do in Jesus to not simply give us something to follow without, but to something to follow within. To, to change us not simply externally, to clean us up and polish us, but to change us from within. We need far more than an external law and ordinance. We need the law written on our hearts, and that's what is offered to us in Jesus. And when we meditate on that extraordinary grace, the extraordinary grace of God in Jesus, to come in and to to transform our hearts, and to move us to follow these commands, we will be moved and desire to follow these commands. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word, this call to Israel to care for the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. And by implication, 
for us to see that we were the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. We were in the worst condition, far worse than Israel. The entire rescue story of of Israel out of Egypt was given for us to have a visual picture of what it means and what it looks like to be rescued out of slavery to sin. May that melt us and move us. You heard our cry. You heard our plea. You heard us in the destitution, in the poverty, in the weakness, in the vulnerability of our sin and darkness, and you came and you rescued us. May that melt us and move us to be people that seek to restore and to rescue others, both physically and spiritually. Heavenly Father, may this move past our heads, down to our hearts, and may it move us into action in defense of the most poor, the most vulnerable, the most powerless. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.